right, if you're staying in the room, I do want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, that, that's the best option. Get it out, turn to Philippians 4. If you don't have a Bible, find someone close to you who has a Bible and just look off of them. Just make it awkward. It's okay. It's better. You can look at it together. If you don't, if you don't have that option, uh, take your phone out, get the Bible app out because I, I want you to have it really close to you. And uh, last resort, we will have the scriptures on the screen behind us. But the most important thing this morning is not that you somehow get sermon points into your heart. The best thing this morning is for you to get God's Word into your heart, and so make sure that you have your eyes on this passage. In Philippians 4, uh, we'll be looking primarily at verses 10 through 13, but I'll also be talking about a few verses after that as well. well we've come to the end of our series through Philippians, and this morning uh, we concluded our, our equipping class on the happy Christian, and I uh, joked with everyone, this is the last day we have to be happy, okay? This is it for the rest of the year. We did our happiness focus, we checked that off, we were happy the first part of the year, now we can be miserable the rest of the year, okay? So for those of you who have just been struggling, the, the day of misery is now arrived next week, all right? So um, same thing. Philippians, we've been joyful. We'll leave it behind. No worries. Um, but no, it, it has been a privilege and a joy to walk through this letter together. And we have been focusing on the theme of joy throughout because Paul talks about it so much in this letter. Um, he's been showing us so many things about joy through both personal example and teaching. He's shown us that we can rejoice in a wide range of circumstances. Do you remember? He says that you can rejoice in the fellowship of the local church. He says that you can rejoice in friendship. But he also says you can rejoice in suffering. And you can even rejoice in the face of death itself. It's a strange letter. It's, it's a beautiful letter. It's an empowering letter. It's an encouraging letter. He says right at the center of this letter in chapter 3 that Jesus himself is the ultimate source of our joy. And you would think after making that case, there's nothing left to say. But here at the end of the letter, as he's concluding with a word of thanksgiving to the Philippians for their kindness and their generosity, Paul finally lets us in on the ultimate secret of his joy in all things because I don't know if you noticed this as we've walked through this letter whoever has preached has has done the work of a preacher and has shown you why Paul says what he says and what it means for our lives but if you notice throughout the letter he gives us glimpses of how you can rejoice in the face of death but for the most part he just says it he, he, he rejoices in his suffering he, he rejoices even when his enemies proclaim the gospel because it's his joy that Christ would be proclaimed, no matter who does it, as long as it's the true Jesus. And there are so many examples of this throughout. But haven't you just been asking over and over, if you've been taking this letter seriously, I know this has been a question that has come up before for me in this letter. How is he able to do that? Well, he rejoices in Jesus. I, I know, but there are so many other factors in. It's one thing to rejoice in Jesus, but it's another thing to say, I still have joy even when I'm suffering, even when I'm in prison, even when I'm facing death. I'm happy. And, he's, and, and to be clear, he's not a masochist. He's not like, oh man, just that pain gives me so much pleasure. Just bring it on. I love it. More pain, more pain. No, he does, it's not his view. What, what's... What's going on here? What's the key? He finally lets us in 
the secret of his joy shows us how we can have a life of joy. A life of joy. Do you know what that would be like? Where someone looks at your life and they say, that person is characterized by joy, by happiness. And it's not superficial. You know, you're not just a cheery person. This is a joyful person. What's the key to that? What's the secret Paul tells us? He says that in any and every circumstance, he can be okay. He can be content. And this is what he tells us. The secret to a life of joy is contentment. Contentment. That's the secret to a life of joy. If you want to be a person characterized by happiness and joy in the Lord, you have to be content. That's the key. Contentment is the secret. I would have called it a secret even if Paul hadn't had because it just unlocks so much of a joyful Christian life. So if we can learn contentment, we can learn to be more consistently happy Christians. Now, I want to I encourage you to pick up a book later this week. So there's, a, there's an English Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote an entire book, and it's not very big, um, on the topic of contentment that is completely inspired by this passage. He wrote an entire book on it. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Make sure you pick that up. It's a Puritan paperback, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it was first published in 1648, but they probably still have some copies around today. Um, so yeah, they've, uh, they've republished it. Um, if you find a copy from 1648, please hang on to that one, all right? That, that, will, that, that would be special. Um, but but it's, it's a really great book. And, and Burroughs, he describes and defines Christian contentment like this. He says that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So the Puritans are a little wordy, so I'll read that again. Contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. So it's a frame of spirit, a frame of mind, a frame of heart that's sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Meaning, the person who is content receives freely and gladly and in submission to God whatever he chooses to give and in whatever situation we find ourselves. This is contentment. He says that contentment is rightly knowing and inwardly submitting your heart to God's providence. Now, contentment is actually life-changing. It really is. If you, if you can tap into the power of contentment, you, you would be able to better evaluate problems in your life. Does every problem that, you know, you face seem really big and it causes you to just stress out and, and you know, you, you freak out over it? Contentment gives you a proper perspective. It doesn't make a genuine problem go away or disappear. It gives you a better perspective to look at the problem. Really big problems in reality are really big problems to you. Smaller problems are smaller problems. Contentment gives you 
uh, a frame of mind to see the world for the way that it really is. Contentment allows you to focus on the things that matter most. Have you ever noticed that? You notice that a lot whenever you, you lose something or, or you're in need. If, if, you, if you're in need, you start to realize, man, all those things I thought that I really needed that made me happy, when you lose those things, you start to really focus on what actually matters. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, actually, what I have is enough. This is enough. When you have contentment, you're able to love and serve others more regularly. You're able to make wiser decisions. There are so many benefits. But the problem with contentment is twofold. First, we live in a culture that does not reward contentment. If you're striving to be a content person in this world, you're not going to be rewarded culturally. Culturally, contentment feels more like a vice than a virtue. It just feels like settling, right? Settling for, for less than, than you feel that, that you deserve or that you're worth. You see, growing up playing sports, there was no such thing as contentment because there's no such thing as, as good enough. Um, contentment is failure in the world of sports. Anybody watching March Madness right now? Anybody? Yeah, just me. Okay, that's cool. Jude, Jude's watching. He is watching March Madness. Um, yeah, so if you're, watching, if you're watching the college basketball tournament right now, if you notice the post-game press conferences, I love them so much. They're my favorite. Or they'll sometimes get in the locker rooms of each team, the winning team, the losing team, and they see what the coach says to the team on the way out. The teams and the players and the coaches that sound content, they say things like, oh, man, what a great year it's been. Has it not just been amazing to just be in this room with this group of guys? And guys, the lessons that you learned are so much bigger than basketball. I mean, it's going to take you throughout life, and it's gonna, you're going to become a great man because of the hard work and discipline you've put in. That sounds like a content person, right? They're all losers. <laughs> all, only the losing teams. Only the losing teams say like that. You go in the winner's side, the, the winning coach in his press conference, you know what they'll say? They'll be like, oh, man, I, I bet you're so happy with this win and this team. they like, no, nah, it's not good enough. No, no, we still got so much more to do, so much more to accomplish. We're not there yet. So our culture does not reward contentment. And for us, contentment feels like giving up. It feels like settling. It feels like failure. That's one problem. The other problem is our hearts are prone to do the exact opposite of, of be content. We're prone to covet. Covetous, covetousness is the enemy and the opposite of contentment. And to covet is to desire something that belongs to someone else. And when we typically think about coveting, we think about material things, stuff, cars, houses, you know, whatever. But we also do this with life situations. We covet the life situation of someone else. Maybe you see someone on social media and you, you wish you had their life or you just have a friend. You're in a friend group and, and someone is living the life that you wish you could live. And you're not content with your own life. You covet, you desire something that doesn't belong to you, someone else's life situation. This is a problem and keeps us from being content. But in light of these problems, it is refreshing and hopeful news to hear that Paul has found the secret to unlock a life of joy. He's found the secret to contentment. He's found the secret to what will kill our covetousness. He's found the key to unlocking true and lasting joy, a joy that cannot be touched by any circumstance we could face. 
So I'm going to show you three things from this passage, and we'll be done with Philippians. First, I want to show you the surprise of con- contentment. Contentment is surprising. Second, I want to show you the secret of contentment. And finally, I want to show you the source of contentment. Okay, first, the surprise of contentment. Paul begins to wrap up this letter by rejoicing in the Lord. Look with me at verse 10. He rejoices in the Lord. He's done this so many times in this letter. But this time, his joy is focused on the loving generosity of the Philippian church. Look at uh, verse 10. So Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, another way to say that is now at last or now finally, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, there are a lot of people that I read this week that have a serious problem with, with Paul's language in this section of the letter. They're like, he sounds so ungrateful. It's almost like he, he's like passive-aggressively condemning them for not being uh, generous to him by sort of thanking them. Thank you so much for finally reviving your concern for me. You know, I've been here the whole time and yeah, you sent a gift. Wow. It took you long enough to send the gift and people just take him in the absolute worst light. And that's not what he's getting at at all. And we're going to see how that plays out here in a second. But this is what he says. Uh, he's referencing a generous gift the Philippians had sent him through Epaphroditus. And if you jump down to verse 18, you see this play out. So down in verse 18, he names it. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He wants to emphasize to them, I have everything I need. And we're going to see in a minute why this is significant, the surprise of contentment. He has to go overboard to make sure the Philippians know, I'm good. I have everything I need and more than I need. You have supplied every single thing that I need. Don't send me anything else. I don't need anything more than what you've already sent. And it's just a strange way to thank someone for a gift, you know. Um, but but that's, that's what he's doing. And I, and I don't, why is he doing this? Well, this isn't the first time that Paul has been a recipient of their generosity. Jump with me to verses 15 and 16. So if you look there, this is what he says. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once And again, this is a church that time and time again has met the Apostle Paul's needs. He has has, uh, provided, they have provided for him in so many ways. Their love, their concern, their care, and their compassion for Paul has led time and time again to an outpouring of generosity. And he actually says here that their concern for him was revived. And again, at first glance, some of these other scholars that read this, they think he's being a jerk. But he says here literally that their concern for him has blossomed. That word that we have in English, revived, it literally means to blossom. So their generosity was blossoming once again. And Paul is clear, their generosity has been dormant. All right, so he actually is saying that, and it's kind of awkward. It's like, you've revived your concern for me, which means there was a dormant period. You're blossoming now, but there was a dormant period. Why? Did they uh, all of a sudden just get sidetracked from the mission of the gospel? Well, no. 
Did they all of a sudden decide they didn't like Paul that much? Well, no. Did they have other missionaries they were supporting instead and decided they couldn't afford Paul as well? No. It's simply because they didn't have an opportunity. And listen, y'all, that, that is a convicting word. As soon as the need arose, as soon as the opportunity presented itself, the Philippians immediately responded with generosity. There's been a dormant period, but it's just because there wasn't an opportunity for them to be generous. The moment there was an opportunity to be generous, they respond with generosity. The Philippian believers were some of the most generous Christian communities mentioned in the New Testament. They're the most generous. If we're ranking generous groups of people in the New Testament, the Philippians are number one. And we do see an example of their generosity and their support and care of Paul right here, right here in the book, in the letter of Philippians. But it pales in comparison to what we see in 2 Corinthians 8. You're probably familiar with the, the famous generosity of the Macedonian believers and the Macedonian churches. Do you know who they are? There are only three options, really, most likely. The Philippians, the Thessalonians, or the Bereans. Those are the churches in Macedonia. Most likely, most likely, when Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians 8, and he's speaking of the Macedonian churches and their generosity, he is most likely referring exclusively to the Philippian church. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you may want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what he says in verses 1 through 5 in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That makes no sense. I need to read that sentence again. That makes no sense. Listen to what he says. For the churches of Macedonia, in a severe test of affliction, let's start counting, in a severe test of affliction, okay, so in affliction, their abundance of joy, okay, so that's strange in and of itself, they have an abundance of joy in a severe test of affliction, coupled with their extreme poverty, what has that led to? A really bad Tuesday, right? Like a bad week, a bad quarter, a bad year. That's what it led to, right? No. It has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, which is also significant. As I can testify, and he says, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is so important because Paul's saying he's not, he is, as the leader of this movement, he is not going and, and pressuring the Philippian church to give generously. They're begging to be a part of it. They're begging we're giving according to our means, which is not much. We're in extreme poverty, and we're going to give beyond our means because we want to be a part of helping those who are in need. The Philippians, they operated by this counterintuitive equation 
affliction plus poverty equaled abundant generosity. It's strange. How are they able to do this? This is where we see the surprise of contentment. This is only possible in a Christian community that is abundantly content and satisfied with what they have. Contentment has a surprising effect on our lives. When you finally feel at peace with yourself, when you finally feel at rest in your heart, when you're satisfied, it actually causes you to pour yourself out for the good of others. Contentment surprisingly creates generosity. It's surprising because contentment feels like you finally reached an equilibrium. You know, and I think that many people imagine retirement to be this way, even though retirement is, is not this way, but you imagine it. You work your whole life and, you know, you're just, you're grinding it out for years and years and years, and then finally you're able to retire and you just take it easy. And everything is just mellow and everything's just chill and you're, you're just totally content and happy and satisfied and you don't have to do anything else the rest of your lives. But here's what we learn. The spiritual sense of wholeness and peace and rest actually leads us to give of ourselves even more. People who are truly content cannot hide. Their contentment is obvious. It shows up in their words and in their actions. People who are truly content They freely give of themselves for the good of others and the glory of God. And when we talk, when we use language like this, we almost exclusively think about money. And that's not the only way that we should overflow in generosity. We should overflow in generosity in good works and service of other people. Using our time and talents. Let's see, people who are content give of their resources, sure. But they also give of their time. They're content. They're good. They're at rest. They're at ease. Everything's everything's fine. They can give of their time. They can sacrifice something to to spend time with someone else or to spend time serving someone. They give of their energy. They give forgiveness. You notice this? Another, Another way to think about only those who are forgiven can forgive is to say only those who are content can forgive. If if you're not content, if you're holding a grudge. If you can't let an offense go, you're not content and you can't forgive. People who are content are able to forgive. They give forgiveness. They give grace to others. They give mercy. But you see the picture here. The surprise of contentment is when you're finally at rest. Ah, and all is good within your soul. You're able to give of yourself for other people. Now, I want, I want you to hear me clearly because the example of the Philippian church is, is one to behold and, and one to marvel at. Um, but the mindset and, and life change that happens when you're content, that doesn't mean that you should start irresponsibly giving of yourself. Because you can give of yourself in a way that is detrimental to yourself, to your family, to those closest to you. And that's not what Paul has in mind here. That's not what I have in mind here. What it it means, what I have in mind, is that generous, sacrificial living isn't just an activity for the rich and wealthy. That's the example of the Philippian church. 
Making a difference in the world for the sake of the kingdom isn't just for large churches with an abundance of resources. Think about how, how tempted you would be to feel silly if you were the Philippian church. You've got this big project going on to support those who are in need. And these other churches that have more resources that are wealthier, they're contributing to it. You'd be like, ah, they've got it. And the Philippians are begging. They're begging to be a part of it in their affliction and in their poverty. The glory of contentment is that it is not dependent or even related to how much or how little we have. Wealthy Christians and large churches who are discontent or seek contentment in what they have will struggle to be generous and gracious. Poorer Christians and smaller churches who are content can make a huge impact in the lives of others for the sake of Christ. It has nothing to do with what we have. It has everything to do with whether or not we are content with what we have. This is the surprise of contentment. But Paul says that contentment also carries with it a secret. There's a secret to contentment. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Look, look there with me. These are some of, the, some of my favorite passages in the book of Philippians. So he says here, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. For I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, again, this feels like an odd thing to say to someone you're essentially thanking for sending you a gift. He's like, thank you for the gift. I don't need the gift. <laughs> it's, just, it's just odd, you know? I, don't, I mean, I do, I, do, I do need it, and thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. I, but I really, I don't want you to think, listen, it's almost like he's tripping over his words. You know people like this? I used to be a little bit like this, where you're so concerned about what the other person says, and you're just like trying to make sure you're saying the exact right thing and that nothing is taken the wrong way. And so it's like, thank you so much for this gift. It makes me so happy. Now, hold up. They're going to think that I'm happy in the stuff that I have, and that's a dangerous mindset to have. So before you think that, not that, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then also he knows the Philippians. And if they see, oh, Paul said, thank you for what we gave him. He must need more. We need to give even more of ourselves. And, then, you know, he's like, no, hold up, chill. I'm good. I have what I need. Actually, this is a good teaching moment. And so he takes advantage of this. He gives this strange qualifier to pass on a lesson that he has learned the hard way. That joy in life has very little to do with the things that happen to us. The situations that we find ourselves in have very little to do with our joy, our circumstances, the actions of others, good or bad, actually don't possess the power we think they do to give or take joy from our hearts. Paul has learned a powerful secret, that contentment is what creates joy in any and every kind of circumstance imaginable. And maybe, maybe you've experienced this before. If you've ever been in need, if you've ever genuinely, not genuinely been in need, if, if you've ever been in need, you've probably realized that you can be okay even when you're really uncomfortable. You didn't expect it, but you're content. You have your family. You have something that you realize. You have a priority. You have something that you realize, as long as I have this, I think I'm okay even though these other things were taken away. 
And so you realize, you found this, you, you learned this secret. This is probably what Paul experienced when he's in prison. He didn't expect to be in prison. He doesn't want to be in prison. But he's in prison. He realized, I'm, okay. I'm still okay. I, I'm still at peace with myself. I, I, I'm okay. And so he's learned that in poverty and in need, he can, he can be content. But he's also learned the other side of it. If you've ever had an abundance, if you've ever been in plenty, if you've ever had every single thing that you need and more, then you realize those things cannot set your heart at peace and at ease and at rest. You can still be restless even when you have everything you need and more. It can still be an experience. So he says, I've learned this as well. Whether I have a lot or I have nothing, I can be content because contentment is unrelated to what we have or what happens to us. And this is how we're finally able to see how Paul rejoices in so many different situations. He's learned in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, he can rejoice. It's found the secret to an evergreen joy. Now, why does it work this way? Well, it works this way because contentment changes the way that we think. It changes our mindset. It gives us a new way of thinking about the world. And this definitely is my biggest takeaway from Philippians and really the first quarter of this year in our church. Our joy does not depend on what happens to us. It depends on how we think about what happens to us. That daggone crosstown train. Man, y'all, that thing, I can't tell you. Um, how many times it has made me late for something? Now, I know, I know, I already hear it, you don't have to say it. Like, if, for those of you who are never late for anything ever, ever in your life, you're like, it doesn't make any sense to me. The train shouldn't be an issue because you should already be 20 minutes early. If you're, if you're not 20 minutes early, you're already late, you know, for your appointment. Okay, got it. All right. For the rest of us who just don't operate that way and we're, you know, sliding in, you know, uh, five minutes before something happens at best, the crosstown train is a big deal, all right? Because if you get hit with that, you're late. But when, when you get hit by the Crosstown train, not literally, but if you uh, uh, get right before the Crosstown train, sorry. <laughs> um, if you're right there at the Crosstown train and you're stuck, and you're stuck 15 minutes now and you're definitely late, I would typically say, man, that, that train ruined my day. The train didn't do anything. The train didn't do, or I could say, you know, me being late ruined my day. Me being late didn't ruin my day. The way that I think about being late can ruin my day. The way that I think about that train coming through at a time where I really don't need it to come through, that can ruin my day. I, that's the biggest thing that I've learned the first part of this year. And Paul is saying this very thing, that his joy doesn't have very much to do with what happens to him. You know, it's not like he was wallowing in misery until the Philippians sent him these gifts and now he can rejoice. And that's what he wants to clarify for them. Even when he lacks, even when he's in desperate need, he is content. Contentment transcends our circumstances, both good and bad. And you may feel like your life is a roller coaster right now, and man, just for a while things were really great, and now things are really hard, or things were really hard for a while, and now things are better, and you're like, I guess it's just my life. It's just some, sometimes it's going to be hard, sometimes it's going to be easy. Listen, contentment in the highs and contentment in the lows, that's what creates an ability to rejoice always, at all times, in all things. It provides a steadiness to your life so that when life is good, you don't ride up the wave of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. And when life is bad, you don't crash and burn. 
It, there's a steadiness to contentment. It's the ability to rightly orient yourself in the world. All contentment is is an acknowledgement that you're not God at the end of the day and that you're okay with it. That you're not God and you're okay with that. That's, that's contentment. We're not ultimately self-sufficient. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't create the world that we live in. We have very little ultimate control over a lot of the things that happen to us. And contentment says, I see that reality and I'm okay with that. I'm good with it. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. This is 1 Timothy 6. So, so anything we have has been given to us so we can be content. Contentment. It gives us a new way to think about the things that happen to us and the things that we're trying to acquire to be happy. So strange as it may sound, strange as it may sound, you can be content in any circumstance that you face. That, that's not just a, a trite saying. It, it is true. You can have a sense of ease, a peace of mind, an okayness about yourself with whatever you have and in whatever you face. When you're content with everything and in anything, you are set free to be truly, deeply happy. And now this isn't a call to live in denial through painful circumstances because can, you can twist it that way and you can say, oh, okay, I can be content in any, any situation. So that means whenever something bad happens to me, I just uh, get really steel, you know, uh, focused and I just, you know, tough it out and ignore it and act like it's not happening and, and don't deal with the problems at all. No, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, he puts it this way. Contentment in every condition means that even in sad and sinking times, we have the mysterious mixture of gracious joy and gracious sorrow. This balance of joy and sorrow through really difficult times is on display through contentment. Now, one, one more thing I want to say in regards to the secret of contentment. You learn how to be content only when you realize that you're not content. And that sounds backwards, but that's the only way. You can only learn to be truly content when you realize that you're not content. The worst thing you can do for your own happiness and joy is to lie to yourself about the state of your heart. Pretending to be truly content will only give birth to more discontentment. Because I get it, it sounds tacky, you know, for most of us to come across like we're discontent with our lives. It does. I, I get that. Like, no one, no one really wants to listen to somebody be like, man, I'm just so unhappy with how things are. And, you know, it just, it, it's not so, you know, you want to sound like the person who's totally good with everything all the time. But if you're actually not, and you're pretending that you are, you'll never find true contentment. On the other hand, maybe you genuinely do feel content. But the source of your contentment is rooted in your circumstances. Well, sure, you're content right now because everything's going really well at work. Well, sure, you're content this week. You know, you checked your bank account. All things are going well. Um, that's, that's not true contentment. Contentment in our present circumstances is not real contentment because what if they change? You are more likely to seek and find real contentment when you sense your lack of contentment. 
than you are to seek and find real contentment when your circumstances are providing you a lot of contentment. This is why Jesus said it is hard, not impossible, hard, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Startling. Why? Not because Jesus hates rich people. Because the rich man can mistake contentment in circumstances for contentment in the Lord. It's easy to mistake it. He can mistake a superficial temporary contentment with deep, eternal, permanent contentment. So, here's your encouragement. If you feel discontent, if in the depths of your heart you're brutally honest and you are unhappy with your life, maybe you wish you just had one really good friend, and you don't want to admit that to anybody because you have a lot of people that you talk to, but you really don't have a really close good friend. And you're like, I need that so bad. I wish I had it. Maybe you're just really sick of your job. You hate it. And you don't want to scare your wife. You don't want to scare your husband, so you don't, you don't talk about it quite like that. Or maybe you won't do anything about it, but that's the truth. You don't like it. You dread waking up in the morning. You, you, you don't want to go to work. You don't have any other options necessarily. It's not like you really want to do something else, but you're just not, ugh, you're not content with it. Maybe you're just sick of not being financially secure. It's getting old. You know, okay. We're squeaking by every single month, but you're sick of that. But there aren't really any other options, but you're just, you're not content with that anymore. Or maybe, press in a little deeper, maybe even in your marriage. Now, obviously, you probably won't say this one to your spouse. I wouldn't necessarily encourage it. But there are days you just wish your marriage was different. You know, maybe you start to worry like, man, I don't know, what, do, what does 25 more years look like here? And you're not content. Or maybe it's just your general life situation, where you are in life right now. You don't like it. You want out. You want something more. You want something different. Listen, be honest about it. If that's where you are, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. You can give in to the temptation to covet what others have and just live your life in bitterness, coveting and complaining and grumbling and being filled with jealousy and envy. Live a life of unhappiness. Or, or, you could turn the other way and see that your discontentment will actually set you up to discover this amazing secret that your contentment does not come from those things. That those things cannot stop the contentment that is found in the Lord. Your contentment is completely non-circumstantial. It completely transcends anything that you're in. So if you're discontent this morning, you need to see it. Those things cannot provide the contentment that my heart desperately wants. Not even your marriage, not even your role as a parent, not your job, not your friends. Only Jesus. And that's where we get to the source of contentment. So we've seen the surprise, we've seen the secret, now we see the source. 
And I hope this question has been lingering in your head. Where does this contentment come from? And I hope you've been filling in the blanks. But if it doesn't come from our circumstances, if we can't find it in the things of earth, if we can't create it on our own, then where do we and how do we get in on the contentment that leads to a life of joy that transcends all of our circumstances, good and bad? Paul gives us three answers. We find it in the power of God, the provision of God, and the providence of God. Let's look first at this amazing verse, this this well-known verse, Philippians 4.13, to see the power of God. So, tracking with Paul, he says, back in verse 12, I've learned the secret of of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, I I had this verse memorized uh, so well. And do you know why? Um, Not because I was reciting it in uh, Sunday school room. That's not where I was reciting this verse. Um, when I was like 12, 13, 14, 15 years old in that range, I wanted to dunk the basketball so bad, so bad. You have no idea how badly I wanted to dunk the ball. And so uh, my grandparents, they had this really nice uh, court out at their house right in front of a barn. And so I would be out there and I would recite that verse and I would say it out loud. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ's strength. And I would go and jump and I would try to dunk it. And I would do that for probably an hour. Nothing but trying to dunk it. And I had that verse and I would say it out loud. I believed it, y'all. I believed that, that through Jesus, I could dunk this ball. Like it was going to happen. And so obviously, probably a lot of you, maybe you've <laughs> thought, used this verse in that way before you've heard of those who have misused this verse. Uh, you're not going to be able to, you know, uh, do just unbelievable, miraculous things just by quoting Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things. There are a lot of things you should not try just because you're confident in this verse. And the context is so important. We can be content in any and every circumstance when our contentment is found in Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I can face anything. I can face all things. I can face the, the good and encouraging and easy things, I can face the bad and the awful and the sinful things. I can face all of it. I can do all things through Jesus, through him who strengthens me. Only Jesus can provide the kind of satisfaction we're looking for in other sources. We've looked for contentment in money. We've looked for it in relationships. We've looked for it in our careers and our hobbies. And at the end of the day, they all disappoint. But when you look for contentment in Jesus, you will always find it, and he will never, ever, ever disappoint. Paul is so confident in this that he says he can do all things. All things. He can win converts. He can face rejection. He can, he can endure the, the, the joy of friendship, and he can face loneliness. He can embrace abundance. He can embrace need. There isn't any kind of circumstance or situation Paul can't face with ease and at rest and in joy because Jesus is with him in any and every circumstance. It's the strength of Jesus that empowers us to be okay when everything around us is not okay. And this is the reason contentment remains constant even when our circumstances change. Hasn't that been strange for you throughout this letter? How Paul just so casually talks about the awful things that are happening around him. He's like, ah, I'm good. I'm good. How's he able to do that? His circumstances are changing so radically. And he's happy in the good things and he's happy in the bad things. How? Because Jesus is what's constant. His contentment is constant because Jesus is constant. His strength is with him always. 
Paul's secret to contentment is recognizing and, and, and rejoicing and relishing this sufficiency, this strength of Jesus in the worst of situations. Facing hardship and living the kind of content and balanced life that Paul is suggesting here. It's not just a matter of changing your mind about things and, you know, oh, if we just think differently, everything will magically be okay. No, contentment does change the way we think. It has that effect on us, but we have to do it in the power of the Lord. One, one of these authors, he said, the secret of Paul's independence was his dependence on Christ. His self-sufficiency came from being in vital union with the one who is all sufficient. So we need the power of God if we're going to be content. What else do we need? We need the provision of God. Paul shares a beautiful promise in verse 19. Look down with me in verse 19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What a thing to say to a struggling community who is abounding in generosity. God will supply your every need. And we can trust that he will. The Lord will provide for us. And it's, it's a source of our contentment. We can trust that his provision in plenty and his provision in need. When we feel like that we aren't good enough, that we're disappointments, the God of all sufficiency has us right where he wants us in life. We can trust that. He will provide. We can rest. We can be at peace with ourselves. Because what we have, remember this, what we have, even the things that you're discontent in, what you have is from the Lord. It, it, has flown, it has come through his hands. So we can renounce bitterness and grumbling. We can embrace gratitude and joy because of the provision of God. And finally, we need to appreciate, apprehend, embrace the providence of God over our lives. This is a source of deep contentment. How on earth can you be okay when everything crumbles around you? How? What, what hope do folks have in, in Amory and the surrounding areas that have, that have lost, some people, everything? Those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, those who are facing the worst of imaginable situations in life. How could we just say to them, be content? I wouldn't encourage you to text your friend and be like, hey, just be content. Everything's okay, you know? Like, that's probably not the, the first thing you need to say to them. But it's true. You can be content even when everything falls apart. Through the power of, of Jesus, you can. Through trusting in his provision. And then finally here, you can face good times and you can face bad times with contentment. When you trust that everything you experienced, however mysteriously, first flowed through the sovereign hand of a God who loves you. So trust in the all-sufficient one. Trust that God is never taken off guard, that you are not where you are in life apart from his mysterious providence. He will provide what you need for the sake of your increased contentment in him. Sometimes that means you'll have a lot. Sometimes that means you'll have very little. But no matter what, you will always, always have him. And he is always enough.